0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Red Medicine, a podcast about radical politics, medical anthropology and the sociology of science. This episode is actually the last episode of 2022 uh, and I just want to say thank you to everyone who listened and supported the podcast throughout this year. I'm really looking forward to producing even more conversations and episodes throughout next year and if you want a more thorough review of This year, make sure you're signed up to the mailing list on the website, because I'm going to send one out in the next week or so. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Chelsea A. Jackson about abolitionism, health, and how the criminal justice system shapes healthcare in the UK. If you'd like to support Red Medicine, please consider signing up for a £1 a month donation to help cover the costs of running the website. You can also support the podcast by giving it a 5-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or just posting and sharing the podcast on your social media. Chelsea A. Jackson is an academic, activist and member of Credo Community, which is a collective of organisers committed to radical education and building understanding of prison abolition and transformative justice. Last year the collective published their first book with Hajar Press, titled Brick by Brick The book provides an introduction to abolitionist theory and a manifesto for those of us who want to build a society free from prisons and police. In this episode we discuss what abolitionism means and what an abolitionist critique entails in relationship to how we think about health, care and hospitals. I asked Chelsea about how prisons and police shape healthcare provisions in the UK, how austerity has made access to healthcare more predatory and dangerous. And finally, we discussed the importance of mutual aid as a tool for building a better system.
1: But yeah, so I thought we'd start with the basic and I just wanted to ask you if you could kind of tell listeners a little bit about uh, the Cradle community and what it does and your involvement with it.
2: Cradle is a collective of uh, feminine people or femmes. Um, you know, women, non gender non-conforming people that are really passionate about building a world without violence. Uh, And so we actually started as a group of putting together events uh, across mainly London, but really spread across the UK, uh, focused on things like bystander intervention and restorative justice, transformative justice, you know, helping with Helping people in the movement, grassroots organizations, organizers, to manage conflict, to, you know, just kind of make it through the things that come along with being in community with other human people. And in that process, and also our commitments to abolition and kind of bringing all these different vantage points from you know, direct organizers to uh, my background as an academic, uh, you know, other academic social workers, creatives, um, and that all of us kind of bring in different perspectives to, to the collective and that ultimately we share this vision of like an abolitionist world, which is one, yes, without prisons uh, and police, but also without like, extreme poverty and, like, domestic violence and, you know, uh, rape, chronic illness. Like, these are also things that we see as being abolished, and it's not just about getting rid of the prison. So, for me, I joined Cradle in 2019, and it's been really one of the most enriching experiences of my life because, one, just being around other humans who are, like, passionate about the same things you're passionate about, um, but also, like, every time we're... Together, like as Cradle, I'm constantly learning, you know, learning more about psychology from, you know, T or learning more about direct organizing and what's happening in prisons from K or, you know, learning what's happening in the creative space from A or, you know, um, what's happening kind of in the nonprofit charity space from J. So for all of us, I think that Cradle is a space where we're passionate about like creating like what we want the world to look like, uh, but also sharing and creating the skills that we need to kind of step into that world that we're building.
1: Mm, Yeah. And uh, last year, you know, one of the things you created as a collective was this book, Brick by Brick. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about how that came about and how it was produced? Because obviously it's published under the collective as, um, you know, collective authorship. I'd be really interested to hear about the process of putting the book together and how that... Kind of arrived.
2: Yeah. So the amazing thing about the book is, you know, it really started from one conversation we were having as a collective about like there should be a, a 101 manual. Uh essentially for somebody who's like just gotten introduced to abolition or just he- heard about abolition here in the UK who needs a jumping off point. Uh, a place to realize, okay, where do I fit into the movement? What am I passionate about? What skills do I already have? And kind of how do I fit into building an abolitionist future? Uh, And the concept of brick by brick, uh, essentially the bricks we need to tear down, but also the things that we have to build, really came out of all of us being so annoyed that when people talk about abolition, they only ever talk about destroying things and the destruction of racism and like these different institutions we have got to tear things down. But actually abolition is much more about the building. It's about the creating, about the imagination that it takes. And so the last piece was recognizing that like all of us agreed that this book should exist, uh, but none of us would have been able to write it alone. Uh, And even we didn't write it just within the collective. We also engaged with so many, you know, organizers and groups and uh, individuals who also contributed in these kind of panel interviews that we did because we didn't want to like have extractive interviews where it's just kind of one on one. We're just kind of taking things from people and putting it in the book. We really wanted it to be in these group discussions so that someone was coming to contribute to the book but they were also leaving with things because they were there with other food justice organizers or land justice organizers you know or um people coming from inside so for us taking a collective approach that everything was like on a basic level aligned with our politics because also we i think individually and collectively recognize that there's a lot of ego in the left and in the kind of social justice space and there are a lot of you know professional you know activists and advocates and people who you know are really have become individual icons and almost like celebrities and that we didn't want that to take away from the concepts we were talking about Uh, and actually recognizing that writing it as a collective gave us that ability to bring in all of our ideas for no one person to kind of be the voice or the face of abolition, but really to recognize that this is a collective movement that's already happening. Um, And then the actual process of writing the book, so we worked with an incredible uh, woman-run publishing house uh, called Hajar Press, and they were so incredible. I mean, they supported us so much, like I'm neurodivergent. I have an ADHD, and like a few other members of the collective are also neurodivergent. And so there are times where we were just not able to work within like the typical publishing kind of structure of like, oh, you have to have a deadline by this day, and like you need this chapter by this day. So they were so flexible with us. And again, as a collective, there were times where we had meetings and we we're like, guys, no one's written their chapters. Like, what's up? <laughs> are we gonna <laughs> do this book or not? Like. You know, like, mm. come on, guys, if we're going to do it, let's do it. If we're not, let's not. And those points of where, you know, as an individual, it's so easy when, you know, we're dealing with things like, you know, housing insecurity. We're dealing with finance. We're dealing with the pandemic. All this is happening while we're writing. And so if we didn't have each other, the book wouldn't have gotten written. Uh, and so now it's even still like shocking to me. And I think I forget sometimes that we wrote a book and we're like, oh, wait, we wrote a book. and. You know um it's still out in the world reverberating uh and and impacting and it's doing exactly what we hoped which is giving people that introduction that first step into what actually is abolition in the uk what does it look like and how do we how do i get involved
1: yeah i mean it is an introduction but it's also like very far-reaching and you're touching on really wide-ranging aspects of everyday and maybe not so everyday life. But that being said, the prison is still central, or the carceral system, the criminal justice system is still central to the critique. Could you explain why that's so important and why that is one of, if not the, you know, center of the critique, of an abolitionist critique?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll have a lot of fun answering this question as as a criminologist as well. So the first piece of it is that one of the primary functions of prisons is to disappear people. is to disappear unwanted people. It's to disappear people who are coming out of care. It's to disappear uh, homeless people. It's to disappear poor people and migrants uh, into foreign national prisons. And so a lot of what the state does is hide uh, its violence that happens in the criminal justice system by putting people out of sight, out of mind uh, and then we do when we do hear about people in prisons, uh, you know, we're seeing like, oh, my gosh, they have tellies in their cells. Like, how dare they uh, have, you know, be able to watch television or, you know, it's always kind of an outrage point of like, how dare these people have access to this thing? How dare they have an open prison? How dare they be able to work jobs? You know, that's the only time that we really see or interact with people in prison in in kind of the mainstream So in abolition, it is so important that we center uh, the people, the very people that the government is trying to disappear out of our sight and mind, out of our view of, you know, who's entitled to human rights. Um, So again, like, all the things that we're fighting for on the outside, such as like women's rights, contraceptives, you know, trans uh, liberation, you know, climate justice, uh, healthcare, as we'll talk about shortly. Uh, these are all things that uh, are really being concentrated uh, in a lot of ways. The worst of the worst of those experiences is in the, is in the prison. But the second piece is that the prison really impacts and shapes a lot of our lives, even though we're outside and we've never been to prison. So, for example, the fear of going to prison, the fear of going to prison and the manipulation of, of that process gives, for for example, police officers power. So we're more likely to be compliant with the police officer or less likely to challenge them or question them when they're doing something, because we don't want to run the risk of going to that bad place. Um, and also, I think the 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 other thing about abolition is for me it's like why are we thinking about getting rid of prisons because one of the hardest problems we have in our society is violence is harm and you know the right likes to paint abolitionists like we are living a la la land and don't like understand that violence happens to people uh, but actually it's the opposite. It's like, wow, if we target the prison, which is like a source of so much violence, and is a place where so many people are sent when they participate in certain types of violence, and it's also a site of violence of the state, like so much violence happens in prison, that, that if we really want to live in a nonviolent society, how can we have a place where we concentrate violence? You know, it kind of like counts. it it like cancels each other out. So it puts the onus on us to imagine what do we need to do to address violence? Because concentrating it and just locking everyone in one place and kind of trying to put it out of sight and out of mind, it has not worked um, and it's not going to work. Um, And so that's the other reason that we really have to center the prison because we don't actually think about how we build a nonviolent or anti-violent society. And if we can't start in the prison, they will never be able to actually imagine that what that can look like.
1: I wanted to ask as well in putting together the book, in putting together the book, but also more generally the work that you've done as a collective. You know, it's it's been happening alongside the kind of George Floyd uprisings and uh, a kind of increased focus um, on the Black Lives Matter movement and the kind of broader racial politics that that encompasses. I mean it's a it's a huge question but kind of how have you observed that moment and how has it impacted the work that you've done?
2: Well that's really interesting because I think for one like for me personally being from the U.S. I was involved in Black Lives Matter since 2014 since Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson Missouri and so it's almost like uh, six years later like a it's, it's become cyclical, if you will. So for us as a collective and for us as organizers, we recognize the cyclical nature of these issues. Like literally just a few months ago, Chris Kaba was killed by the Met police. And the sad thing is, is, is that this keeps happening, right? Uh, we keep seeing the evidence of police violence and that leads to these uprisings. And I think for us, how it translated was in the midst of this, in the midst of, as you said, like the growth of Black Lives Matter, but also this kind of racial justice awakening and this kind of collective viewpoint that we have to do something about this. We can't keep allowing this to kind of dominate our society. Um, But there also was what we experienced was like a real desire to separate the UK from the U.S., Mm-hmm. So just a year after George Floyd is murdered, you have the um, the civil report come out that says there's no institutional racism in the UK. Right. Uh, it's this real desire to like separate America and their issues with race and racism from from the UK, which as an American, I find fascinating because I'm like, how do you guys think Americans got there? How do you think America got there? their first slaves were slaves. They were British subjects. Yeah. So the whole basis of the settler, the genocide against Native people and Indigenous people, that was the action of British subjects. So for me, it's also that in recognizing this broader awakening of race is really important for us as a collective to keep connecting it back to colonialism, to keep collect- connecting it back to slavery and imperialism and white supremacy. And we did that throughout the book, because in so many ways, it's like the history has been chopped up. Um, and there's no understanding of like how a thing like George Floyd could come to happen. How could, why would there be a million people in the streets of London saying Black Lives Matter? Like, how could that all happen? And the reality is like, yeah, because all these issues are are intertwined and interconnected. And often all of the issues we're talking about when we think about abolition are more constant colonies that are coming from the African continent of African descent, Black background, whatever you want to call it. But it's like, we see, more concentrated in those communities, all these issues that I think are coming to the forefront.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's it's great that you raised actually, because my next question was going to be about the the importance of kind of specificity to the UK context. And it's interesting that you've come from the, the US to the UK, and you can have, you know, a really interesting view on it. But, you know, how important is it to be really kind of specific to the kind of national context but then also kind of the community context in 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 the work that you do
2: yeah um I think the focus on the UK has been really really important one because a lot of the abolitionist kind of literature and research and, and kind of vantage points has really come out of the U.S. and been really dominated by the U.S. and so in a lot of ways it has kind of warped the perception like even like everyday people think like when I talk to people they think that the police spend their time solving violent crimes they think the 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 police and I have interviewed the Thames Valley Police and talked to them and you know they were estimating anywhere from three to ten percent maximum of their time is actually spent on crimes involving or or incidents involving violence right? The other ninety seven to ninety percent is on social issues, poverty, homelessness, domestic issues, incidents, sex work, like all of these things that they should not have anything to do with. Um, and so the reality is a lot of us in the u k. have really warped understanding of, you know, our friendly neighborhood, Bobby. Um, you know, we have a warped understanding of what prisons are. And even when I hear people talking about, you know, uh, the the leniency of the UK, you know, kind of sentencing system and how, you know, someone can uh, maybe get sentenced to 12 years and then they do six years or they get sentenced to eight years and they do four years. And hearing like conservatives be really, really opposed to that and saying we need stricter sentences. And so the truth is that we really don't know what happens in prisons in in the UK? We really don't understand what's happening in healthcare, what's happening in the NHS, what's happening with austerity and the cuts uh, across education and 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 social housing, the the cuts to council funding and the impacts that that's having across the country, uh, especially in you know up north, especially in those areas outside of London that just aren't in the limelight. You know, we really don't. As a nation, as a UK, we don't really understand what's happening in our own country. And because of that, that's where you get the statements like, oh, that's a problem in America. They have really bad prisons there. They have really bad overcrowding. And oh yeah, there's racism there. But it's like, yo, look at our foreign national, look at foreign national offenders and look at they're all from former British colonies. So what's up with that? and eastern european people. So, so what's up with that? What why is that the case, you know? And 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 so again, it, it's about us in the UK like no, let's look in our own backyard. Let's look in our prisons. Let's let's actually look at the high proportions of kids in the UK who come out of care and go into prison. Mm. Let's look at that because that's the truth in this country, not in America, here.
1: Mm. Yeah. This book really also feels like a call for that kind of theoretical work to be done in a UK context as well. And, you know, obviously it's really important to draw from all the kind of fantastic work that's been done before and much of it done in the US, but I really got the sense from finishing the book that it's an invitation to build a kind of theory and practice around the specifics of the carceral system in the UK as well.
2: Absolutely. And I think for us that there are so many connections between the carceral systems in both countries, but that really don't zooming into the UK. And here's the other thing, like, it's not just about the terrible things, like, it's not just about the prisons and the healthcare in prison and the experiences of women and it's also about the incredible things. It's about the mutual aid groups. It's about the food justice organizers. It's about the community kitchens and community fridges that are spread all across. It's about the incredible groups that are leading walks and taking people out into the countryside and getting people back involved with nature and doing urban gardening. and. And the, you know, people organizing with education and no more exclusions and and fighting, you know, a joint enterprise. And so it's all of these incredible organizers and groups and and grassroots and leaders across this country who are also transforming, you know, the incredible strength of unions and the power. Uh, So there are many things that are actually an advantage uh, in the UK and that that also what we wanted to illuminate as well in the second half of the book, like, yo, there are so many incredible initiatives and things and people who are already doing this work, who are already creating the abolitionist world right now today. Um, and you can find someone no matter where you are in the country. And if you can't, you know, you can start your own, you can start your own cop watch, you know, there are resources for that. And so that was the other thing for us. It was really about empowering people, like you said, to really feel like, hey, no, this is something that's happening here now and I can dive in and get involved.
1: Mm. So I want to ask you one more thing before we move on to more kind of specific stuff around kind of care, healthcare and medicine, just to really kind of like solidify all the stuff we've kind of talked about in this sort of first part of the discussion. I wanted to ask you how important to abolitionism the, this kind of shift away from punishment and blame towards kind of accountability and transformation is and, ha- and how that kind of shift encapsulates um kind of so much of what is in the book and in the work that you do
2: on the one hand it's just like the shift is about hope but on the other hand the shift is about survival it's about hope because in order for me to like believe in the world as a Black, queer, neurodiverse, immigrant woman, I have to think that, yo, these systems, right, are not always gonna be in place. Like to a certain extent for us as a collective, because of our lived experience and like the bodies that we exist in um, and the way that we are dealing with capitalism, like we have to focus our energies towards what we can build. We have to think about Uh, what comes next, because it's for our own uh, kind of vision. And in order to be able to see myself in this world in 20 years, things have to be really different. In order to be able to see, you know, myself bringing children into this world, this world has to be really different. And so that requires me right now to be imaginative. But then on the other side about survival, it's literally like our day to day, just making it is also about moving the needle on this because The other reality in this country is like nobody is far away from being homeless, especially Mm -hmm. we're going through a cost of living crisis right now. Nobody is far away from being locked up. Nobody is far away from, you know, experiencing housing insecurity, not knowing how you're going to pay your gas bill. Hell, some of us are doing that now, no matter how good jobs we have or how much education we have. Right. So Mm -hmm. the reality is like, yo, we have to look forward we have to look at something else because we can clearly see that this is not working even for Mm -hmm. those of us who play by all the rules Mm -hmm. um so it's really for me as far as like personally is such a hopeful and it's a thing that gives me like that helps me get out of bed in the morning like it's a thing that helps me abolition is that thing that helps me feel like no no no. no. we can like okay we can win like no we can do this we can Mm -hmm. we can make things better and you know, I was very angry when I was an activist before I learned about abolition, before I became an abolitionist. And I was just like a racial justice activist. And I was a criminal justice reform activist and academic and researcher. And when I was writing about criminal justice reform, I was depressed as hell. (laughs) When I was like, Protesting in the mayor's office in Atlanta, trying to, you know, get them to release nonviolent offenders. Like, it's so depressing to take such a slim view of these issues. And actually, what gives you the, like, that breath of fresh air is like, whoa, no, taking an expansive view and being like, hey, wait, we could change a lot of things, not just one thing or kind of tinker around the edges.
1: What was it that uh, shifted your kind of political consciousness around that? Was there a particular event or kind of conversation or community that helped pivot your way of thinking?
2: Um, for me initially, actually it was a conversation with my dad because he asked me, he was like, I always hear you talking about what you're fighting against, like racism and misogyny, and climate deniers and stuff. But what are you fighting for? And uh I actually came to the UK looking for abolition because in the US, there weren't any criminal justice degrees where you could actually learn about abolitionists, like an academic like research project or anything. And so when I came here and I studied Oxford, I'm like, okay, wow, like I have a professor who's an abolitionist, um, Mary Bosworth, and, and she works in immigration, but still it was it was to me that light bulb. And then actually one of the first kind of abolitionist type events that I went to on Oxford campus is actually how I met one of the members of Cradle and a few mm-hmm. months later I actually joined the collective. So it was that it was abolition that brought me into this feminist collective into this kind of world of of imagination and I'm so excited about it cuz like I said I was like hella depressed and I know there are so many people out there like the more you learn about the systems and how screwed they are the the less you want to do this whole life thing the less you want to like you know participate in it and what organizing mutual aid abolition like um what these things give is like oh no this is what I'm here for no no no, we can do this and I think just on a basic level like when so many of us are coping with you know anxiety depression and like the the fact that the seasons are changing we're going into winter right now it's getting dark in like 3 p.m sometimes you just need something to give you a little room and like abolition a lot of times is that thing
1: definitely I mean that's quite a nice place to kind of turn and talk about care and health and, and all these things that kind of run through so much of what you do it runs throughout the book there's you know there's so much stuff about different aspects of health and care I thought maybe kind of keeping with this conversation about the specificity of the UK um, sort of set against the US discourse, the UK healthcare system is uh, in some ways radically different to the US system. And in, in some ways they, they sort of share certain qualities. But in terms of the UK system, how do carceral logics, the prison system, the police, how do they shape healthcare in this country? Or I mean, that's a big question, but, you know, how, how can we start to think about that relationship
2: well, I think one of the main ways that we talk about this in the book is through a reactive approach. So in the same way that police don't prevent bad things from happening, they're called after the bad things happen already. Uh, and we take a similar approach to our health as human beings. Uh, and so we have a very reactive and prescriptive view of, of health care. Uh, rather than a holistic and preventative view uh, of healthcare, and it's like it's literally you could use healthcare as an analogy for the world and for abolition, and say, okay, our society is a body, and we only decide to respond when that body has high blood pressure, or when that body breaks its knee, or you know, when that body has a mental breakdown. Mm-hmm. Whereas we could be taking care of that body's mental health the whole time. You know, we could be stretching that body. We could be feeding that body the nutrients it needs and water and giving it sunlight and fresh air and all of those things that we know we need as human beings. So on a really basic level, like it's like the same approach that we take to crime, violence, harm, social problems, it's the same approach we take to sickness and unwellness in our bodies. Uh, it's a very reactive and a lot of times destructive approach. Uh, you're dealing with this ailment. So let me give you this medication, which is not going to give you these other six ailments because of the side effects. And then it's also going to have a negative effect on your stomach lining because you're going to have to take this three times a day. So that might give you stomach ulcers. So now I need to give you medication for the ulcers and now, you see? Mm -hmm. And so we've gotten into this and this is in no way, shape or form me ragging on medicine and the power of, you know, that that we have to to heal each other and to heal ourselves and, and to address things that, you know, a few hundred years ago would have been a death sentence, you know, for human beings. So the the, the point of the middle ground is moving towards a preventative and a holistic, um, but also a non, as you can say, a, a decolonized healthcare as well, because the other piece that's often missing from when we talk about medicine is like medicine as it currently exists is a Western or European invention. Um, you know, even going back to the Greeks, doctors take the Hippocratic oath. Hippocrate Hippocrates went to Africa. He went to, you know, Kimmy, he went to Egypt, he went to these places to learn about medicine and then brought that back mm. to Europe and spread that information. So the reality is that medicine and these things have never only been concentrated in Europe. have never, never only been concentrated in England. It's just been um, designed in a very specific way, in a colonial way. And so when we think about things like BMI, that's based on a concept of an ideal body type, which is a colonial concept. When we think about concepts like hysteria, which is based on the control of, of women, and women who were having sexual urges, or women who were upset, or women who were talking back to their husbands, being locked into insane asylums. And so we see how healthcare was used as an instrument of kind of like the Imperial Project and the creation of what it means to be an English person, but also what it means to be an other. And using medicine to create that and define that about who's healthy, you know, whose body is the ideal kind of body type. And and also what should we all be striving for? Um, And then finally, how we should treat our bodies, uh, that we should treat our bodies as machines rather than things that we need and and that kind of grow and age and and, and move with us. So I think there are so many things that bring into like the intersections of abolition and, and health. But for us, on a basic level, it's like the same way we want to take a forward-looking approach to crime and harm and violence. We want to do that as well with our bodies and our health and, and our sanity.
1: Yeah. I mean, another thing you do as well is you kind of centre the experience of, you know, what does it mean to receive health care as someone in a prison or a homeless person or, you know, someone trying to navigate the border, for example, and far from being kind of marginal experiences or kind of exceptions to the rule like what do those experiences actually reveal about healthcare in the in the broadest sense and and the kind of logics that healthcare operates on
2: yeah I think I think it uh, well one part if, if anyone any of the listeners are unaware healthcare uh, in prison and imprint detention centers is absolutely abysmal, if it exists at all. Uh NHS watchdog in 2020 put out a report saying that almost half, almost half of prisons failed to provide adequate health care. And that was at a very low standard of what quote-unquote adequate, adequate health care entails. But the reality is we know that if you are living in unsanitary conditions, if you are, you know, a woman or a menstruating person, and you don't have access to sanitary. You know, napkins and products, and you don't have the ability to take a shower when you need to, or you're not being exposed to sunlight. And so you're not getting vitamin D, or, you know, there's no fresh air. You can't exercise. You have no choice of the food that you eat. And so you can't adjust your diet and make changes. You know, living in a a cell with a toilet that's being used and flushed and no lid. And this is the same place that you eat. And so all of the things that we claim that we know about sanitation and healthcare and washing our hands and nutrition and diet and exercise and the importance of drinking water and all of these things, all of those things are somehow now privileges because someone's locked up and they're inside. And so them getting sunlight, that's a privilege. Them getting to choose what they want to eat, that's a privilege. (laughs) You know, them getting to drink water or take multivitamins, or take iron because they have an iron deficiency or they're anemic that's a privilege. Uh, you have diabetes and you need insulin that's a privilege. When you're in prison this this is the reality of what people are facing. You're schizophrenic and you need your medication that's a privilege. Cuz guess what? You're in the hole. You you know you have a disciplinary. You're in the hole so you're not going to get your medication. These are the types of things that are happening to people day in day out. So then when we come to the outside and we look at the NHS and we look at things like a one, three, six suite, where someone who's having a mental breakdown is able to be you know, restrained by mental health workers or by police officers in this kind of unit that's just for the purpose of like being a holding tank. And that after this certain period of time, I'm, I'm not sure if it's 36 hours or 48 hours or what it is, um, that they can either put you into jail or prison and and essentially, like it's this pathway. So when we look at like what's happening inside a prison, and then we compare that to what's happening outside, we start to see like, okay, maybe this is why austerity is chipping away at the NHS so much. Like, what are we actually considering our adequate standard of healthcare?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Like, wait, okay. And 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 the thing for me that really blew my mind was when I was studying criminology, learning about the concept of the total institution. And that actually a hospital and a prison in the terms of how they run and how they operate and hierarchically and the way that they're, they're designed, it's not that different. And then when we look at companies like Sodexo that provide the, the food in hospitals and also in prisons in mm-hmm. this country. It's not that different. So we start to see all these connections that are kind of being hidden from us that really and and then, then one of the main things that I think is a personal ick of mine is like GPs, like how hard it is to get basic information from your GP about like what's happening with your own body.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: then imagine that you're someone who's in prison and you have no idea what's going on with your health. You're being gaslit um, because you know, you're know you a black woman or a black man and it's perceived that you don't feel pain, right? So these are the realities that people are facing inside but also outside um, and we're seeing that bead across.
1: Mm. Yeah, and you touched on it there as well as a little bit earlier that, you know, the kind of regime of austerity that has just become the kind of norm in this country is, you know, basically meaning more and more functions of the state are being handed off to the police when they they're not adequately trained or, you know, well adjusted enough to actually address, you know, the issues at hand. I mean, like, could you talk a little bit about? what, you know, what kind of cascading effects that has and like, you know, what are some of the kind of the effects of that austerity policy?
2: Yeah, exactly. And and I really appreciate uh, the question as austerity policy because austerity is a political choice. Uh, you know, when Jeremy Hunt, I always have to make sure I say <laughs> his actual name and not the one that me and my friends call um, <laughs> When he said that we have to make tough decisions, right? And we need to tighten our belt. The belt he's tightening is social care. The belt he's tightening is universal credit. The belt he's tightening is support for, for, for children, young people coming out of care. The, the 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 belt he's tightening, he's never tightening the belt on, on the tax loopholes. He's not tightening the belt on non-domicile status. He's not tightening the belt on the national insurance contributions of people who earn more than 150,000 pounds a year. No, 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 no. That's not where we tighten our belt. We tighten our belt with the poorest among us, the most disposable among us, those who are struggling. And the most disgusting thing is those are the people who are most reliant on our social systems, our social care, on the NHS, on these type of systems. And so when you're like me and you're neurodivergent and you go to the NHS and they tell you there's a two-year waiting list, for you to even be screened. What do you do? Where do you go? And then we wonder why people are on the side of the road having a mental health breakdown and then being arrested.
1: Mm.
2: Well, maybe because they can't get <laughs> the care that they need. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. so to me, it's almost like infuriating because it just feels like, yo, look at this. It's like, when we're making these cuts, where are we making cuts? Where, where are we making snips? Because we're certainly not snipping the the budgets of the Home Office. That's not where we're making cuts. So so when we say we're making cuts, why is it always to education and housing and care and benefit? Why is it always to the poorest among us and the and the and the most marginalized among us? Why is the why are we the ones who have to tighten the belt, the poorest of us? What why not the MPs stop having their lunches subsidized on the taxpayers' dollar? How about MPs have to pay more than a pound fifty for a top shelf whiskey in the MP bar in 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 but that's the reality of where our tax dollars are going. But that they, when they're not trying to tighten the belt there, they just gave themselves a raise. Our MPs just gave themselves a raise, but we but we got to make tough decisions. That's what Jeremy Hunt said. So austerity is a political choice that's always targeted at the most disposable, and these are the same people that go into prison. So it's exactly what you said. And, and the last thing I want to say as well is a lot of these roles are really adjacent to prison because if you're a social worker and, and um there's a safeguarding concern, literally you're trained to the first people you're supposed to call is the police.
1: Yeah.
2: If you're a nurse or a mental health worker and somebody is, you know, behaving in a way and you can't physically control them or constrain them, you're also trained to call the police. So a lot of our, you know, a lot of these social systems even being affected by austerity and kind of being torn down, even those, their first point of call when something goes awry is, again, to call the police. And it's like, this is why for me, it's like, as a society, where is our vision? Where is our imagination? You know, where is our actual problem solving? Because a dude with a taser and a uniform showing up nine times out of ten when we're dealing with cost of living when we're dealing with domestic issues when we're dealing with um lack of access to career opportunities unemployment um poverty stress mental health issues you sending someone who has the authority of that uniform is not going to do anything for that situation except escalate it and criminalize someone
1: involved and so to go from that critique and kind of I suppose, knowing who our enemies are, or, or knowing which systems we're dismantling, could I ask you to talk a little bit about, you know, the kind of, uh, I really love the phrase kind of scalable, um, kind of mutual aid infrastructure, you know, like, what what is it that we can be using to solve these problems, and kind of what are some of the things that you and Creative Collective kind of really want to centre and kind of put your energy into?
2: Yeah, especially in the meantime, I think COVID nineteen uh, taught us so much about the power of of mutual aid. And for anyone who's not really familiar with mutual aid, it's not charity because it's a flat uh, exchange. So it's about giving what you can and taking what you need. There's no kind of uh, service provider or uh, kind of a service user relationship it's a flat relationship. And the beauty that I think COVID-19 taught us was that, oh my gosh, we can get together and take care of the elderly in our community. Oh my gosh, we can get together and make sure that the single mom has diapers. Oh my gosh, we can get together and make sure that every person on our street has food and that that person who's isolating, you know, still has some kind of contact and we come and just wave through their window. So it taught, it showed us the importance of community. It showed us how much we need each other, how much we need each other, and we can't do this alone. And it also showed us the power of a few people who live close to each other getting together and saying, let's do this. And then how many more people start getting in. Oh, I can drive on Thursdays. Oh, I can drop off this. Oh, my job can donate this. Oh, I can bring that. So everyone bringing exactly contributing what they have. So I think mutual aid gave us an incredible, during COVID-19 and particularly doing food and the parcel drop-offs and those type of things, gave us an incredible blueprint for the austerity economy that we're going into. As we step into recession, as we're in the middle of a cost of living crisis, not me, I don't know about you, but my gas bill is like, I don't know how they think I'm going to pay it. I mean, I think we just both agree that (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen with it. But, you know, so the reality of what's happening right now, you know, is that we're currently going through this. Like. And and COVID-19 is still going on and three times more people are in the hospital this winter with the flu than last year. So it's like the NHS is under pressure. People are getting sick, and so we we had to fall back into what worked, which is mutual aid, which is community, which is putting the work, which is bringing what we can and taking what we need, which is removing um, the judgment and the hierarchy that's so often involved in philanthropy and just moving that out of the way and saying, wait, yo, how can we help each other? But I think the other part of it is, is so important, especially in terms of health, is thinking about how can we take care of each other? How can we share holistic you know no remedies how can we learn more about herbalism and plants how can we learn more about diet exercise nutrition you know stretching our circulation how much water we drink how much can we share with each other about ways to keep ourselves healthy and protected, to strengthen our immune systems, like all of these things that we can do together as a community. How do we take care of each other uh, with those who are, you know, um, who have vulnerable immune systems or who are facing certain, con- who are dealing with certain conditions? You know, how do we really dig into each other and make room and take care of each other? And I feel like we saw it so beautifully during COVID-19. And so it's going to take more of us to step up, more of us to get involved, more of us to start these initiatives. But also, I would encourage any listeners who are uh, doctors, healthcare professionals, you know, nurse practitioners, et cetera, uh, to really think about, one, in your job, how can you disrupt that connection between healthcare and prisons? How can you take the police off of being that first point of call when something is not going on according to plan? Someone's acting a little erratic in the emergency room. How do you stop them from calling the police in that situation um, and and kind of divert that and, and make a different choice? But then on the second hand, how do you democratize the skills and knowledge that you have and share it with your community and with those around you so that they can use it for their benefit as well? So if you're a GP and you're still wearing a KN95, everywhere you go, everybody in your community needs that same information. And how are you disseminating that? Right. If you, you know, take you know this supplement and you eat kale three times a week because you know the vitamin D, like whatever, whatever that looks like for you, sharing that with your community so that more people can get involved. If you have a garden or an allotment and you're growing ginger and you want to give it around to your neighbors for them to make a good tea and strength, you know, whatever that looks like for you is saying what do I have to offer? What do I have to give? And how can the people around me be healthier for it?
1: Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this will be probably one of the final things I ask you. So I want to ask you about the kind of the importance of joy uh, and a kind of collective idea of joy. You know, I really love that you brought in the example of Notting Hill Carnival sort of towards the end of the book and and kind of really making sure that that is a sort of central part of how we think about abolition, community, health. I mean, how should we kind of be embodying that idea of joy in political organizing? Like how important do you think that is?
2: It's so important. Like the only thing I can think of there, the only two things I can think of that are more important are like love and imagination. Patience is also
1: really
2: important, but The reason I say like joy is so important is exactly when I was talking earlier about being depressed, but also being angry. The more you learn about how fucked up things are, it's a right. It's like it's a righteous indignation. It's it's a righteous rage. Like you're justifiably pissed off about how things are. You're justifiably pissed off about what's happening to marginalized people and what's happening in your own community. Maybe what's happening to you. You're pissed off about it, and you should be. But it's like, if you live in a state of perpetually pissed off, your cortisol levels are off the chain, you're stressed out of your mind, you're anxious, you can't sleep, your appetite is all over the place. And I'm saying this because I've been there. I've had my hair falling out while I was going and organizing rallies. I've been not eating because I'm we organizing this campaign. And I'm telling you, you are a human person and you need joy. You need to smile. So sometimes... You know, after organizing meetings, I'm gonna watch some anime. That's
0: what <laughs> makes me happy.
2: You know, I just need the You know, I like to wear funny little ears, like I wear Minnie Mouse ears and stuff like that, to really heavy sessions and mediations because we all are still human beings. We still need stimulation. Like I told y'all earlier, I have ADHD, so my brain is literally like without dopamine, we're gonna be able to do nothing. <laughs> so. Joy is such a a central part of being able to accomplish things for me personally. But also, I think, especially for organizers, especially for groups and movement. If every time y'all talk, if every time the WhatsApp group buzzes or the Telegram chat, because I know some of y'all are more sophisticated, (laughs) right? Every time the Telegram buzzes, it's something else horrible that's happened. Mm -hmm. It's another terrible report that's come out is another proof is another officer who's it's another person who got killed is another you see mm. so everything that becomes associated with this movement and with change and with social justice becomes draining becomes depressing becomes down and no we can go on walks we can have fun we we'll play a game. like when we first started cradle we would have our meetings on um and this is like early early pandemic so i'm aging myself here but we would have our meetings on house party just cause it was fun. And like we could high five each other and like put hearts and like play games and make our heads super huge. And we were doing that because just meeting on Zoom was like starting to feel like draining. So the importance of joy is for us, just as individual humans, our whole lives can't just be around work. Our whole lives can't just be around survival. Um, and we have to acknowledge those parts of us that need Um, Those soft things and happiness and joy, engaging with our inner child, building friendships, laughing, dancing, um, whatever those things that bring you joy, whether it's painting or knitting or whatever. Um, You know, a lot of us in Credo love crafts. And so we do crafts together and like make things together. So it's it's all of that. All of that is just as much as part of us organizing and having the imagination to be able to write brick by brick um as the very hard and tough and kind of in the weeds stuff that we do so I think a lot of times it can be put on the back burner oh I do self-care when they're after the revolution and it's like you're not going to make it to the revolution if you don't (laughs) have some joy and peace and take care of yourself
1: yeah amazing I mean I I think that'd be such a lovely way to end it is is there anything else that you think we might have missed or anything more you kind of want to go over or discuss before we kind of finish up?
2: Uh, I would just say that people in prison are people and um, people who are, are homeless are people. And everyone has a right to healthcare. Everyone has a right to live. And everyone has a right to the life saving medicines that we've been able to develop as a species, as human beings. So it's our responsibility to make sure that that happens, And I hope that that message goes to your listeners.
0: Thank you for listening to Red Medicine and thank you to Chelsea for such a lovely conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to stay up to date with Red Medicine, you might like to follow the podcast on Twitter at red underscore underscore, underscore or sign up for the monthly newsletter at www.redmedicine.xyz forward slash supplement. Thanks again for listening.